Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 190, The Prophet in a Feast for Crows. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Emmett. Wait, hold on, hold on. I'm Eliana. Some of you might have been confused over the past few weeks because I was... I called in my stand-in, someone else whose name begins with the letter E, and I was like, it's like the same thing. It's the same thing. And we covered a, a different show entirely. Yeah, a huge thank you, listeners, for giving us a little time off there, and I hope those of you that have watched Succession Season 4 finished up the series. What a great ending. Check out our episodes with poor Quentin from Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F podcast. He joined me for a handful of episodes. It, it was actually a really fun time for us. We we had a really good time. And there's a little bit of a swaf in some of the episodes. You know, sometimes we make some little a swaf refs. Yeah, it is a good time. I have to listen to the final episode still as of recording this. So I will not be able to make any references to that yet. But I, I've been listening <laughs> to the coverage. It's been really, really fun. And I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to be on the other end. <laughs> I'm like, when is it going to come out? Do I get early release? (laughs) And then when I send you the early release, you're like, no, I'm waiting till Friday. Or no. Well, no. Sometimes I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. I'm out. I'm at dinner. (laughs) My bad. I get it. I get it. Well, we're happy to have you back. You were very much missed. It was very fun to chat with Emmett, but more fun to have my Eliana back. I don't know if that's true. Uh, Anyway, so it begins with the letter E also, equal. (laughs) My God. Well, since we're back, a little bit of housekeeping up top. Patreon episode last month was Victorian One, The Wind's a Winner. We were able to get it out here in May. Thank you, Eliana, for your efforts. I'm saluting you. But yes, Wind's a Winner, Victorian, fun time. Patrons in the Stranger Tier and Above. $5 and up, get access to that episode, as well as other bonus episodes from The Winds of Winter and many other different stories and shows and etc, etc, etc. So check that out at Patreon. And next month, or this month, I should say, we are going to cover The Forsaken in The Winds of Winter. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of crazy that we're at The Forsaken. I never, I I always knew we'd get here someday, but... It's funny because it's like the most recent Winds chapter to have been released, I think. But mm-hmm. it's actually like not. We there's still a bunch of other older Winds chapters that we haven't covered yet and won't cover yet until we get to those POVs. So interesting stuff. Bit by bit. Bit Literally. by bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be available for you if you're in the Stranger tier and above. But let's say you are in the Thunder tier and above, ten dollar and up on our Patreon. That gives you access to our Patreon only Discord, where you get to do fun things. Like for example, join us for June brunch slash happy hour, which the date is yet to be announced, but it comes with games, giveaways, and get to know yous. And you can access all of that at Patreon.com/slash/GirlsGoneCanon. C A N O N. Check us out over there. Thanks so much for your support, patrons. We couldn't do it without ya. And so, some of the other things that are resuming this June, which is uh, our coverage of Sailor Moon, we were thrown off a little bit by, like, I thought it was so perfect, you know, we were gonna, we're gonna, like, get to the last season and so forth, like, the the final movie right around when it releases, but uh, life got in the way. Life and death got in the way. So, um... So here we are, back at it. 
Back at it again with the yeah. white pants. <laughs> <laughs> we should have the next Sailor Moon episode on season two for Sailor Moon Crystal coming out towards the end of the month. And we're actually very excited as long as she still wants to, to uh, bring on yes. our very special guest that has been so patient with us, Chica from Shoju Sunday. Yes, I, I hope so. Um, we need to, you know, resume a lot of our activities, so. Yeah, again, thanks for your patience, Thank everyone, you. as we Thank get you. back to being humans. We well, did have to remember how to time. do this whole episode thing, you know? Well, thankfully we had our little practice run with Victorian. I think we have a lot here to talk about with Aaron. And speaking of which, I do want to give a spoilers warning, right? We always like, you know, you're here, you know it's a reread, there's going to be spoilers anyway of what happens in all the published books. But I'm going to be real, like, the, the Aaron chapters kind of gain a lot more meaning and weight in the context of the Forsaken. We're going to try as much as we can not to spoil it, but there is some, like, going to be heavily, like, hinted at stuff or, like, some things that we're going to refer to that are kind of confirmed in the Forsaken in these Aaron chapters. So I don't know. It's kind of big, but it's kind of not. But And honestly, in retrospect, I was thinking about it while reading this and I'm like, oh, it's it's kind of there. It's very much there. There's a lot of hinting in this chapter towards some of the reveals that come. And a lot of people actually, and you know, I'm going to just get it out of the way. Like a lot of people had already theorized that some of the stuff with the rusty hinges meant Aaron had been sexually assaulted by Euron for a long time. Some people didn't, but then the Forsaken confirms it, so. Yeah. So we will try to, you know, lay off that, because we want the Forsaken episode, of course, to be special. Uh, I mean, I already have a little bit of, like, apprehension, because there are some people in the cinematic Aeswaf universe that have written, like, essays that are 400 pages long about it and are way smarter about it. I have written an essay also on the Forsaken, not about, not 400 pages, maybe more like, you know... <laughs> 10 or less. Four. Yeah, four. <laughs> but it was a good essay, so you know what? I'm part of the, the Asloff Cinematic Universe, too. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, you should read that essay by Eliana. Maybe we'll link it for you. Maybe we'll link it. Someone Ta should. I don't know. We'll talk about it later. All right. Eliana, how we work on this podcast is we do a lightning round in between oh, okay. characters, POVs, chapters. <laughs> Which ones should I, should I read aloud? Oh. I did. Do I get to pick a special color too? Oh on my, my God. on the outline, you guys might not know this, but uh, <laughs> Chloe and I have designated colors on the outline. I'm like a light blue. She's a mauve. A mauve, a mauve. I'm like a, it's like a purpley, pinky purple. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. You know, real Dane hours is really what it is. So. <laughs> Well, we'll pop up with our lightning round, which we'll go a little deeper into history with. First, Aaron Greyjoy is born, the babiest of Quellen Greyjoy's <laughs> second marriage boys. And babiest. he grew up in his teenage years to be a major partier and gambler. More on that in this chapter. In the Greyjoy Rebellion, he raided coasts alongside Victorian and Euron and nearly drowned off of the Fair Isle in a trap set by... Stenice. Aaron was initially thought lost, but washed up and was found by fishermen, given to Lannisport in chains and a prisoner throughout the rebellion. It's like a band name. Lannisport in chains. Move over, Alice. He's returned to the islands later, and sometime after the rebellion, he once more goes down during a storm, washing up unharmed and also a new man. 
Religious, spiritual, he changes from rowdy and ribald to a hardened hermit of the beach, the damp hair, respected by the ironborn and his acolytes. And then we come to a clash of kings where Aaron brings Theon home from Lordsport to Pike and blesses him with seawater. Did I write that or did you write <laughs> You wrote that. that. I didn't write that. <laughs> I don't remember writing that. Um, I too want to sprinkle holy water on Theon. Is something I wrote, apparently. Aaron attends Balin's war council against the North, and he's present at the harrying of the Stony Shore with Theon and Dagmar. He blesses Theon's new ships. Aaron then commands Benfred Tallert to be given to the drowned god when he refuses to cooperate. With permission, he takes six of Theon's ships for future raiding. And that leads us to a feast for crows, one of my favorite of the books. Aaron returns to his duties as a priest, post-reaving, and informs Balin of Theon's defeat at Winterfell. He opposes Balin's desire for Asha to succeed him. Yeah. And so that brings us here to the Prophet, a.k.a. Aaron won in A Feast for Crows. And the king has died. Dead. Dead as fuck. In the Prophet, whilst performing drownings under a gray sky, Aaron is told that the king has died. Yeah, so weird fake out there from from George where he's like he's performing drownings, and I'm like, oh, George, you're so edgy. Starting out with uh, making us think that Aaron's killing people at the beginning. Anyway, lol, happy for him. The way that this book starts, this is like the first of the POV chapters, right? Other we we have the prologue, of course, with Pate, but. Aaron learning that the king has died serves as a great parallel with Cersei, of course, learning that that Tywin has died in that whole aftermath, especially because Tywin was really framed as being the real king, right? Even though he wasn't actually the king. Yeah, you see it with Dorne, right? With Oberyn's death and the news mm. of it reaching. That becomes a huge factor for those chapters, so it really draws in some of these new plots. I know that's always a big complaint in Feast is the new plotting coming from the Dorne and Ironborn, but I think there's some great echoes together. Absolutely. Aaron tells Emmond, which is the boy being drowned, which I do have to say, there's so many fucking Emmets in this story. Every day I look at Emmett and I'm like, dude, you're in the story. (laughs) It's you. The cinematic universe. It's you. Holding Emmett up to the book. Look, it's you. Have courage, he said. We came from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Open your mouth and drink deep of God's blessing. Fill your lungs with water, that you may die and be reborn. It does no good to fight. Jesus. Yeah, so I guess this is like very intense baptism, but I don't know why I think of, you know, those those diagrams of the, the fish, our first ancestor <laughs> that's crawling onto land. I think of us becoming the yes. fish with legs going back in. Um, the boy kicks and the strength goes out of his limbs. No more bubbles of air come into the surface. He is pale, cold, and peaceful in the water. Lord God, who drowned for us? The priest prayed in a voice as deep as the sea. I guess it's not very deep. I'm sorry. Deeper. Let Amend. Let Amend your servant be reborn from the sea as you were. Bless him with salt. Bless him with stone. Bless him with steel. I thought that was interesting. You know, you think of like Sansa's porcelain to ivory to steel stuff and like that whole idea of transformation in there too, especially because you have Aaron kind of. He goes through that journey over his entire lifetime. Oh, okay. That's, That's a, his porcelain ivory steel himself. Salt, stone, and steel. I think so. 
Aaron notices three horsemen on the shore, Spar, Stefarian, Spar's son, and another tall youth with dark red fur-lined cloak and a good brother pin. So, I, the, the language of the three horsemen stood out because it's one horseman short of having, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse imagery, but turns out there is a fourth horseman with them. It is death, invisible, but he's here in the room with us in this chilies. Making I kind of love it in it. this chilies. Oh my god. Yeah, you, you've never watched that. I've never watched it. The hell, the first time I finally watched it, I was like, oh, that's where that's from, huh? I knew, huh. but yeah. It's fine. It, it's, it's, fine. It's, it's like not, it's not a need, but you know what? It's actually better. Like, I was very like anti before, and then I did watch it. I'm like, all right, it's not actually bad. It was. It's a okay watch. It's okay, um, yeah. You know, it's like how now I wouldn't maybe rewatch Parks and Rec necessarily. Interesting. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So what you said here about death being invisible, though, reminds me of the stranger not being mentioned in songs, right? How they don't mm, say his name, but they say seven gods. So you might be onto something there. Hmm. Aaron's drowned men take the drowned boy to shore with Aaron following naked, except for a sealskin clout across his privates. He's handed a rough spun mottled robe at the shore, blue and green, the colors of the sea. His hair is long, black, uncut, and it falls down past his waist. Seaweed is woven through his hair and long beard. There's a lot going on here in terms of uncut hair and religion. Like, on one hand, you have George's background. He grew up Catholic, and these, like, remnants of the story of Samson from, from the Bible, who had a pact with God to never cut his hair in exchange for superhuman strength, but... There's also something, I think in general, in our real world, we see a lot of connection between religious practice and how people express themselves through their hair, right? Like, for example, you might see paintings and, and of monks, right? They used to like shave the tops of their heads in honor of St. Paul. But also with Aaron not cutting his hair, um, it kind of also reminds me of the Sikh practice of Kesh, where people let their hair grow out in respect of God's creation and Part of the reason for that practice was it was a command by like a religious figure, Guru Gobind Singh, but it's also a practice that requires care, um, respecting and caring your own hair, which is kind of different from the way it sounds like Aaron's hair is, right? You don't also let people publicly touch your hair, but there's these things called the 5Ks in the Sikh religion. Kesh is one of them with the growing of the hair. The other is Kanga, which is like the comb. And uh, that's because they want to emphasize that neatness, because I guess there was a time when everyone wasn't really, like, maintaining that. And so Guru Gobind Singh was like, we don't do that. So anyways, the way that they use express religion and hair in the Drowned God's religion is uh, by weaving the seaweed, right? And they let the tangles happen, and that's how you show people you're a believer. I love that you've talked about this because I feel like there's so much symbolism with hair in general related to religion. I mean, I say symbolism, but in real life, right, with real mm -hmm. humans and mm -hmm. real cultures that exist and people that follow real religions, not just fake medieval book. But there's also something that it reminds me of with Mary Magdalene. Stay with me on this one. Aaron Magdalene. There's that long-standing association, right, of like long, unbound hair and sexuality and Mary Magdalene, for example, is depicted in so many pieces of art during washing Jesus' feet with her hair, for example, with her tears and ointment. And her hair is always being depicted almost like a, a, a robe, a chaste robe across her and covering her. 
And then you have Agnes in the Bible, who was stripped and taken nude to a brothel, and miraculously her hair grew to cover her immodesty and protect her from being assaulted. And, you know, you think of Aaron being kind of a disciple of his brothers, and the idea of foot washing or of hair being long, being part of being humble and loving God, and him being an assault victim comes to mind here with the hair and not cutting it, right? Like, thinking back also throughout the different stages of his life of him not cutting his hair. Like, when he's young, it's one thing, and then he grows up and he becomes kind of a drunk to hide the pain in his life and to not have to face, you know, what, what's happening inside of him. And then depression and alcoholism, and now here he is, and it's through a religious choice. Yeah, uh, you kind of have... I like this connection with St. Agnes, right? It's like the hair and the religion becomes a sort of shield for for Aaron. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we're going to dig into that with this story. It, it comes up a lot. And yeah, he is washing people, I guess, kind of literally. But mm -hmm. very intensely, very intensely. <laughs> with CPR, you know. <laughs> a lot going on. The drowned men- A lot. <laughs> a lot. The drowned men begin to pray around the dead boy, and a few begin pumping his chest. Here it is, the CPR, but make way for Aaron, who pries his lips apart and gives Emmon the kiss of life till the sea erupts from him, and he's coughing, alive and full of fear. Yeah, he doesn't believe in uh, chest compressions, so... No, the other people were doing the chest compressions, which is interesting. But that's what I mean. He's like, wait, wait, what? They have to be, like, really in sync, you know, for this to work. Yeah. Fascinating. Ugh. I don't think George did much research on CPR, maybe, when he did this, which is interesting because, like, they taught it to us. Were you taught CPR in health class in school? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I, I remember, you kind know. Kind of speaks to how many they've lost, you know? <laughs> right. Like the, the the little baby doll. And you go, baby, baby, are you okay? I'm like, if the baby is, like, choking and also is a baby, how is it going to tell me if it's okay? <laughs> anyway. Mm. Questions if I'm holding I its had. head underwater, too, you know, that's my other question. How? Well, oh. that's why you're not supposed to do it to the newborns, because they can't really. Anyways, we, we'll get into that. Another one. Sorry, deep, deep voice, deep voice. What the fuck was that? I don't know. Another one returned. It was a sign of the drunk God's favor. Men said, "Every priest lost a man from time to time. Even Tarl the thrice drowned, who had once been thought so holy that he was picked to crown a king." But never Aaron Greyjoy. He was the damp hair who had seen the gods own watery halls and returned to tell of it. Rise, he told the sputtering boy as he slapped him on his naked back. You have drowned and been returned to us. What is dead can never die. But <coughs> rises, <coughs> the boy coughed violently, bringing up more water. Rises again. Every word was bought with pain, but that was the way of the world a man must fight to live. Rises again, Emmond staggered to his feet, harder and stronger. Congrats uh, on your puberty, Emmond. Good job, Emmond. You know, it was a total mitzvah. I love that for him. And I noticed during this, Tarl the Thrice Drowned, who had once been thought so holy he was picked to crown a king. That's Aaron, though. Yeah. Aaron's thrice drowned, and he is, I mean, right here he's called to crown a king. For the king's moot. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron's, yeah, Aaron's story has a lot to do with, oh, he's got this kingmaker thing going on too, right? That pairs with Dorne. Kingmaker, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. He's very different from Kristen Cole, but you know. Yeah, at least Kristen Cole made a choice. <laughs> it's true. I guess they both were like, let's not crown women. That's something they have in common. 
Aww. <laughs> Aww. Aaron tells him he belongs to the god. The other drow men give him a punch and a kiss and put him in a mottled robe and give him a driftwood cudgel, which apparently everyone keeps this cool little memento, as we'll see at the end of the chapter. Aaron announcing that he belongs to the sea and the sea has armed him to fight their enemies. Great echoes to the sparrow, mm, right? With yes. arming the faith here. That entire drowning is so chilling. That's such a great passage. It's an incredibly long time, right? Like the whole time I'm screaming. I'm like, someone get that kid out. Bring him back. But especially in the front of the chapter and throughout the rest, it's really clear that Aaron is like really putting all of his chickens in the faith basket. He really believes in the drowned god, especially coming off of Victorian, right? Mm. Where you know that Victorian's like just rolling dice and hoping something works for him. Aaron has given his all here. It's not unlike Melisandre's fervent faith compared to some of these other characters we see that are somewhat religious. This is a very strongly religious and faithful man. Absolutely. And like that's I think such a big part of his arc. Faith, the questioning of it, temptation, etc. And yeah, I think it's it's absolutely right to compare him to Melisandre and he's going to be tested a lot. There's a lot of tests. Aaron. It's funny because I just picture, even though he's actually, he's really young. Uh, I think that's something that also is, he younger is than me? forgotten. Mm, I think he might be. He's uh, one of those like Sandor-esque like 30-year-olds or some shit. Hold it's on, so interesting for me quick. that Sandor is 27. I'm like, sir, go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would have been born somewhere between 269 to 273. So yeah, 27 to 30. Oh, that's so fast. Somewhere in that range. It's so interesting. Our age, yeah. Very young, though. And I think that automatically, I usually in my head just think of him as like an old priest, but he's young. He's a young priest. He's, oh my God, youth pastor Aaron. Well, he's got a lot of trauma, you know? And also, I, I guess they have him like, they they have him portrayed by much, much older. I don't even know if he's named in the show, mm -hmm. but he's like. No. He's like an old he's man. Called, and like, I'm, the like, priest. I'm like, excuse you. I don't fucking look like that. <laughs> As, it's no. funny, though, because I immediately think of, like, Archie from the Great, who uh, was Darwin in Succession, if anyone caught that. Okay. But I think of him as Aaron in my head sometimes when I'm watching, especially the new season. Oh that man is but older than us. <laughs> he's, like, way older than Aaron, yeah. So that's what's so funny. I'm like, he's, like, 30. What am I thinking? Yeah, it's me saying trauma, us. Like you, you, me, and Aaron. You, me, Aaron, and Callan. <laughs> so... Meanwhile, the three riders watching from their saddles finally get addressed. Aaron is like, did you come to be drowned? And he snorts at their responses because he thinks that their drownings were nothing but fake or false in comparison to what he actually does and, you know, actually drowning people. And he says that uh, if you don't die in truth, you can't hope to rise from the dead. Great words. You know, it is actually, but... um. Yeah, now that I think about, like, Aaron's age and why he feels so much older, I think it has to do with this, this, with his attitudes about, like, the watering down of the traditions and the religion of the Iron Islands, right? Like, he, he, he judges Stefarian Spar, who was drowned only as a child, because, like, you can only dip them in the head, because doing CPR on babies, as we've discussed, is very difficult. <laughs> um, it's, it's a tradition that technically, you know, was it Stefarian's choice? It's kind of his parents, if you really think about it, right? And, like... I think that's interesting because it shows this huge generational rift, which is probably why Aaron feels so much older, especially compared to like characters like Asha, right? Because we see 
him and his generation trying to like hold on to the glory of the Iron Islands and like the old way. And I'm like, when was this glory? It was like over 300 years ago. Like none of you were there. Or maybe it was like thousands of years ago. Like what is this fucking former glory we're talking about? And then you see those like Asha. And like, I th I think it's just something that I don't relate to that generational rift because there's not that much of an age difference right between us and like the next generation if you think about it or current ones so we see in some of the other areas there's tensions with preserving culture for northerners right like where the starks are but it's not like a sense of conflict in the same way right besides the where does loyalty lie the starks are the crown but that's not a generational rift that's more of a power grab thing free folk their ways are changing but kind of out of necessity and they have this shared generational there's no like generational ideological divide because survival um so i think the closest that we really get interestingly to this cultural and generational divide that's happening in the Iron Islands is within the Night's Watch, which technically is not a kingdom in the way that the rest of Westeros' regions are, but they do have a shared culture that is changing. And it's represented by Alistair Thorne and by Jon. And I think Dance, A Dance with Dragons, like, has that, shows the dip, right, in the advancement, right? Like, the, the, pushback against it of modernizing with Asha of course chased out of the Iron Islands and John being murdered no big deal <laughs> and then you have also in a second you have Aaron silently judging Gorman for refusing to get down from his horse for fear of getting his shoes wet and it's it's interesting right you see these older generations judging young ones for allegedly being fixated on the wrong things you have this iron price stuff going on which is part of maybe why he's judging Gorman um and you also have like it's interesting because you have Theon when he first comes back to the Iron Islands in Clash being punished, scolded by his father for being too northern, not paying the iron price, not being ironborn enough, which is fascinating when you see that other people in the Iron Islands are actually kind of similar to him. It's just like his family that's very mm -hmm. traditionalist. Candleroy himself, baby boy, Candleroy, Theon Greyjoy. Yeah, actually. I mean, well, also, like, well, there's also another Kendall Roy hours for for Aaron later on too. Good, good. There's but it is lot. that right? Like he's he's punishing Theon for his failures. Yeah, for his own failures. I don't it's even. Nuts. It's and not even like also, a failure, you know? Right. Well, in his eyes, it is. Yeah, that's true. From Balin's POV, it's a fail, and I don't know. I think there's also so much power dynamic going on here, right? Because. The other kid here offers his horse to Aaron. He's like, no, just take my horse, Mr. Aaron Greyjoy, sir. And Aaron's like, no, it needed to be Gorman's. Like, he needs to respect me. Yeah, it was like a weird power play. And I think we're going to see a lot more of, like, Aaron using religion as a way to regain power. It's like he's punishing yeah. Gorman for straying. And he's, like, really reshaped this narrative where he's like, I have to go quickly and I must ride this specific horse. Because this is, like, all he gets. This is the only way he can take that power. Yeah, but it's Damn. pretty effective. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out when you have the voice of fucking God speaking through you, it's pretty effective. Well, he's so also a, a great order. Also, Kendall Roy ours, but, um... <laughs> <laughs> so, Spar is here to get him. Lord Gorald's son came with the news for him, and the boy steps forward. He's no more than 16, and he names himself Gormand Goodbrother here to bring damp hair to his father at the keep, to hear news that only Aaron's ears alone should hear. 
a maester's bird from Pike had come in. I love that uh, it's in this moment that, the, that Aaron finally asks the kid, like, wait, okay, so which good brother are you? <laughs> There's ma- good there brother, are many. Home of the good brother, can I take your order? I can't, I'm telling you, good brother too. T- <laughs> they are coming out with another good burger. It's what crazy. Is. It's actually Aren't it's they? filming down the road from our good friend from one really? our, one of our patrons was sending us video on it. Oh the yeah, other that's day. right. It's that's nuts. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. NDA. NDA. Reluctant to leave, Aaron says, "Anything you tell him, you could tell all my best friends. Uh, they can hear it too." <laughs> and so they do. The king's fucking dead. I think this is kind of funny because, like, on one hand, actually, Aaron, you do have secrets from them, and also. I mean, he kind of is right about this one thing. Like, yeah, you don't have to keep the secret from them because you know what? Everyone's going to fucking know. Everyone's going to know that Balin is dead sooner or later. Okay, there's no fucking stock market or shareholders that you have to worry about, all right? You're not trying to beat the media. It's fine. (laughs) Aaron Greyjoy had built his life upon two mighty pillars. Those four small words had knocked one down. Only the drowned god remains to me. May he make me as strong and tireless as the sea. We'll see how that goes. Aaron asks how his brother died. He's told that he crossed a bridge and fell, dashed upon the rocks below, the storm raging behind him. Aaron announces that the storm god cast him down, using storms that bring only woe and grief. My brother Balin made us great again, which earned the storm god's wrath. He feasts now in the drowned god's watery halls, with mermaids to attend his every want. It shall be for us who remain behind in this dry and dismal vale to finish his great work. Just saying, I watched Futurama, and I just don't think that mermaids attending to your every want is the wind that they think it is. (laughs) The Lost City of Atlanta. (laughs) That episode. So they plan to ride to Hammerhorn, and Aaron takes the boy's horse to ride quicker. He isn't fond of horses, but he knows he must ride quickly because a storm is brewing and storms brought naught but evil. They meet at Pembleton, beneath Lord Merlin's tower, passing folk who never set eyes on salt water. But it is to his brothers that Aaron's thoughts turn to, and we get the exposition dump of the nine sons of Quellen Greyjoy, Harlan, Quentin, Donnell, who were all fathered on a stone tree woman. The first wife. Then we have Balin, Euron, Victorian, Uragon, and Aaron, fathered on a sunderly of Saltcliffe. His third wife bore him Robin, sickly, best forgotten. Uh, and Quentin and Donnell died as infants, they're forgotten as well. And he only kind of vaguely remembers Harlan. Is this like a Harlan Ellison reference? Uh, and who was taken by Grayscale, and he thinks that someday they will all feast on fish in the Drowned God's watery halls, the four of them, and Yuri too, and Aaron's fixation on Yuri. That's gonna come back. Sadly. It's very sadly going to come back. It's very soon and sad. Something about the way it's phrased, the nine sons of Quellen, reminds me a little bit of the 19 sons of David in the Bible. Uh, And I don't know if it's like a reference reference. It could be. But he has them from numerous wives as well. Even with a couple of the plots of some of these kids in the Bible, like Adonijah, the fourth son of King David from Haggith. He tries to usurp the throne during the life of David, and Solomon has him executed after being warned to remember his place in the line of succession because of the instruction regarding the crown. So, kind of interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. Succession. Succession. Greyjoy succession. <laughs> kind of. That is what's going on. But yes, yes. It, it does actually have that feel. Interesting. Yeah. Something about it like stood out. I was like, wait a second. Nine sons, 19 sons. It's got something. Yeah. And I'm sure this could really be looked at for like, I mean, hell, look at what the Targaryens, the Bajillion yeah. Targaryens too, but. George was just like, I need an idea. There's an idea. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. Open it in point. Only four of Quellen's sons lived to manhood. Balin, fierce, boldest, fearless, running, climbing, sailing, fucking, and captaining his own ship by 17. Yeah, Balin, I think we've said this before, he's really his family's Rob Stark. Discussed that in the Victorian chapters. And Aaron kind of feels that way, too. Absolutely. He's, uh, he's all like, He was all an elder brother ought to be, though he had never shown Aaron aught but scorn. I was weak and full of sin. And scorn was more than I deserved. Better to be scorned by Balin the Brave than beloved of Euron Crozai. I'm like, okay. Uh, it's true, but okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you take the pain where you can handle it. After dark, they reach the spiky battlements of Hammerhorn. The gates close and bar for the night. Aaron beats on those barred gates with a rock and wakes a guard, and they enter a drafty, shadowy hall. One of Gorald's daughters serves ale, one pokes at a fire, and Gorald, good brother himself, is speaking with a slim maester. When he sees Aaron arrive without Gormand, he asks where he's gone, and Aaron explains he returns by foot, telling him to send his- and then he tells him to send his court away so that they can speak alone. I just love, again, Aaron being like, which one are you? When the other good brother kid opens the door, and he's like, I'm Grand. Part of why he wants the maester out is because, like, he- sees the ravens as creatures of the storm god which i thought was really interesting in the context of euron right and and him maybe having had like a brush with green seeing and then of course a blood raven with i mean literally all of his ravens and crows and then also like you know that melisandre even sees him in the fire too and i don't know interesting i love that i didn't i i, I didn't catch that so that's really i think it that is something. Yeah. He probably just, hates ravens. I just don't see, like, birds as, like... It's just fascinating that they're seen as, as uh, creatures of the storm god. Because I, as far as I know, birds and storms, like, they don't go well together. Mm -hmm. Not for the bird, I mean. Yeah, maybe it's just enough to for him to put something on it so he doesn't have to think about it, you know? Yeah. Bird's the word. He doesn't like maesters because one failed to treat Yuri, which we're going to get a little more of that soon. No proper man would choose a life of thraldom, nor forge a chain of servitude to wear about his throat. Hmm. Big Randall Tarly hours this time, but also, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot there in general that we could unpack about ironborn conceptions of masculinity and servitude and dominance, especially when we were discussing how it wasn't seen as less masculine on, on Victorian's ship, right? When on Victorian's ship, when some of his sailors were raping the boys, right? Um, it was masculinity is associated with dominance, but also in terms of like that idea of servitude and thraldom, I'm just like pot, meat kettle for Aaron because it's not like, don't a lot of people kind of envision the life of a prophet? you know, a religious figure, priesthood, as as being one of serving? Yeah, you're supposed to be humble and serve your whole life. That's your job now. Yeah. And 
there's also something crazy about that thought here at the Good Brothers Keep because they straight up, it's said, you know, they live inland, uh, not actually at the coast, but inland. And they have their thralls mining iron and gold all day long. And it just makes me think of Victorian being like, thralls are different. They're not slaves. But here you have people on your very land that, yes, are basically enslaving thralls to work in the mines all day long. And you think that being a maester is thraldom? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think, I mean, regardless, he sees both of it as thraldom and therefore what, like, demeaning because it's not, I guess, a position of dominance, which... Mm -hmm. Yes, that's everything, obviously. I mean, maybe Aaron at least understands that thralls are basically slaves. Unsure. I don't know. But because Victorian clearly did not piece that together. There's a lot he hasn't pieced together. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Uh, Like his wins chapter, which is not complete. It's not a full full summary. So the good brother wants his maester to stay, and Aaron's like, alright, well, I'll leave then. And then he goes and walks out, and he's like, they're gonna offer me a better deal. They're gonna give me the price I want. And as he reaches the door, the maester clears his throat and says that Euron Crozai sits the sea stone chair, and you know what? That gets his attention. The hall immediately grows colder for Aaron, who learns he arrived the day after Balin's death, claiming the crown, sending ravens to bring the lords and captains and kings to pay him homage. That's probably why he hates ravens. Um, Aaron says... This cannot be because only a godly man may sit the sea stone chair and he is not godly. And they're like, well. Yeah, I'm like, did you install a mechanic to prevent this from happening? Is that what you're saying to us right now? Because if you didn't install some crazy mechanic to prevent godly men from sitting upon God the less. salt throne. Yes. A salt or God throne. Less, yes. The salt <laughs> throne. Get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, because a godless man is sitting there. Yeah. What? George changed it. He should have yeah, kept he salt did. throne. He, you're right. He did change it. <laughs> he did change it. And we're just salty about it. Uh, Good Brother asks if Aaron knew anything about the succession from Balin. Aaron recalls that Balin said Asha was next, that Theon was weak, and Aaron had argued it would never be accepted, but Balin was deaf to things he did not wish to hear. Kind of ironic. I think Aaron seems like he was deaf to things he did not wish to hear from Balin, apparently. But also, look, <laughs> it's the dance. But also not. But also, Aaron, you fool. Yeah, totally the Balin uh, Viserys dynamic here, right? A little little Viserys going on. Very strong. Favored Asha wrote Theon off. Her chair gets stolen. She must flee. George kind of has a type. He does. Uh, <laughs> I'm imagining Balin going, my only child, which is... Literally the funniest scene from House of the Dragon for me. I'm like, they're literally, your other kids are literally right right there. there. They're right there. Uh, Ash is standing there. She's like, number one boy, it's me. (laughs) She is number one boy. Uh, The maester says that the chair belongs to Theon or Asha if Theon is dead. You know, by rights. But Aaron's like, no, we're Ironborn and we do not live by Greenland law. You know... His refusal to make a choice and back someone against all the lords he speaks to today, it's really what brings Euron down upon them even more. Uh, But it's a bitter irony, right? Like, I think of our own political system, lol. But if he had just backed one of them, well, okay, but to be fair, if Euron hadn't been like this giant evil psycho figure that he feared, the entire thing could have been avoided in theory 
But like realistically, even if they had backed Victarion, Euron could summon evil-ass demons and murder everyone. So I, I don't know. Uh, what's the point, right? And on one level, I think that's it for Aaron. Aaron knows the horror he's experienced from Euron, and he knows that that horror is limited and that there's more to experience from Euron, right? Like Euron's horror capabilities probably can do more. Uh, he fears him spiritually, psychologically, physically, all of it. And it's interesting because the only person, you know, when you think of religion, you're told you should fear God. You shouldn't fear anything else. You should fear God above all and hold his power in awe. And that's the drowned God for Aaron. And maybe that's part of his compensation and his path for religion, right? That he is trying to have a greater power to fear than just his brother. But it's very devastating. Very sad. Sad hours. I, that's definitely, I think, a big part of the arc for Aaron, right? As, as you said, right? that the drowned god gives him faith. It's something, it, it provides structure for his life after Euron kind of tore it all apart. And mm -hmm. as you said, if he could just make a choice, and you talking about that, I I have been kind of like mulling that over. I'm like, why didn't he just fucking pick someone and go with it? And I part of it is, I guess he didn't want the responsibility of it, but I, there's something that I remembered. I was talking to like a trauma therapist and she was talking about how something that she works through with like, victims of like domestic violence is that a lot of them don't trust their own judgment anymore and i wonder if like that's kind of going on with aaron like there's some times that we seem being so decisive in this chapter but then you get to this really big thing and i mean it is something that i think most people would struggle to make a decision with i i mean granted i have trauma yes so maybe maybe that i'm not a good case but like i think most people <laughs> most people struggle with being like let's Let's just fucking pick someone and crown it. It's it's a big deal. Yeah. And especially when you know what the answer to your crowning will be. You're on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they could have gone full, you know, full Cersei or something, you know, been like, all right, this person's crowned. Let's go grab, let's go imprison Euron and go execute him. But whatever. Yeah, just slit his throat in his sleep, you know? Someone's got it. Honestly, I don't feel bad about <laughs> proposing that as a as a path to power. Murder is never right, unless it's your own Greyjoy. Yeah, but then they wouldn't do it, because they're all, like, kinslaying, you know? As we oh, see that, from Victorian's problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Victorian's problem. There's <sighs> a lot of people on that island, okay? Yeah. Any, any, anyone could have done it, but... So Goral then asks if Victorian would make a claim, and the maester interrupts again, saying, wait, Euron is the elder. And Aaron agrees, but says Victorian is more godly, glaring at the maester. And the maester doesn't seem to get that he should shut up, and asks, so is it going to come to war? And again, like uh, those lines about Aaron, he's, he gives a look, and he's like, anyone would have been silenced by this look amongst like the Iron Islands or something like that. And it's really hammering home how religion is Aaron's way of reclaiming masculinity through social dominance. Yeah, that stands out really loudly in this. Yeah, I love the uh, the silencing him with a look from Aaron, though. I think that, uh, I think maybe as a, not as a fandom, but just as an overall, when you think of Aaron Greyjoy and you think of his life, maybe you don't see him as this domineering force of power, right? And here in this chapter, when you get kind of in the pages like he's very powerful Absolutely. he's a very like a, a figure with a presence with an aura yeah yeah he really he really is and that's coming through 
maybe that's like just scaling because of his siblings. You know, you, you see Victorian in your mind and you're like huge, hulking, big fist. You're on, you're like psycho. And then you're like Aaron, the priest, but he's actually got a real presence. He does. And actually, I guess all of them do to an extent and they don't really realize it. it it's something that I'm thinking about, like how you brought that up in in that Victorian Winds chapter, that he is someone that's really respected. He's someone that people want to impress and please. And Aaron has that, I think, sense of charisma as well. It's interesting how we feel about like the Greyjoy brothers compared to how they're actually seen in society. It's kind of funny. In their society. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> in their society Aaron in the says- book. Yeah, in the book, yeah, like IRL for them, but not for us. Mm-hmm. IRL for us versus IRL for them. Um, in book life, IBL. <laughs> Irritable bowel movement. Aaron says that the Ironborn mustn't shed Ironborn blood, but Good Brother is like, okay, but that's kind of bullshit, and Euron doesn't agree because he also drowned Sawain Botley, who was like, the chair should go to Theon. Aaron then goes, this is so funny to me, dude, I'm d- I died laughing when I read this. I had to like read it four times laughing. Aaron is like, well, no blood was shed. And everyone's like, hmm. 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 It's kind of like, what, Drogo, right? Melting Viserys' mm-hmm. head in a... Crown. Yeah, in, in Vase Dothrock, so. <laughs> Loopholes, man. Crown fit for a king. Honestly, Aaron should have just seized it and been like, well, there you go. We should execute him for that, but anyway. Gorold asks, what will it be, homage or defiance? Aaron says, send only silence. I must pray on this. The maester says, it doesn't change the law. Theon's the heir, Asha next. Send only silence, eh? Eh. Oh, silence is already there. Yep. So. He also, like, said, yells silence at everyone at one point. So interesting, Aaron. Interesting. Aaron gets pretty annoyed at this point, and he's like, I've listened- Ironborn have listened to maesters for too long. Now we listen to God. He's given the comforts of the castle, but instead he chooses to head back to Pebbleton to sleep upon his fresh horse on the way, in the saddle, dreaming of a nightmare, the scream of a rusted hinge, and of his brother, Yuri. Yuri had died by flying axe during a finger dance, when his father and siblings were away. His mother, who was a piper, chose to give him to her maester instead of healing him the old way with fire and seawater. The maester said he could sew back the fingers using poultices and potions to heal after, but instead it mortified. By the time they sawed Yuri's arm off, it was too late. He died. Lord Quellen, their father, never returned from his last voyage, resting with the drowned god at sea, and instead Lord Balin returned and took his revenge on the maester, removing three of his fingers with a cleaver and sending his father's wife to sew them back on. The maester died raving, and the piper woman died soon in childbirth with a stillborn daughter. Aaron's glad that the maester suffered for all this because I... It's implied he feels a lot of guilt because it was his axe during the finger dance that tore off Yuri's fingers. It's brilliant how he does this passage because he doesn't tell you it was Aaron at the start. He says there's a finger dance, blah, blah, blah. And then at the very end, he goes, it had been Aaron's axe that did it. So you learn they were playing. They were just playing their little Ironborn finger dance game. They were kids playing a game. And now his brother's dead. So... As now that we are here in the story, there's all the guilt. There's the second part of the guilt unfolding for you all. 
Um, little Stannis hours there, right, with Quellen dying on his last voyage and Balin returning and cutting someone's fingers off. I was like, oh, Stanny. Yeah, that's true. I, I And Balin does actually have a bit of, you know, that Stannis-esque thing going on with him. So does Aaron. But it what you're saying about guilt is interesting because when I think about it, like, I mean, it wasn't Aaron's fault, you know, mm-hmm. like, it really wasn't his fault. But when we think about his life, again, as as surviving sexual abuse and that trauma, perhaps he feels that guilt sometimes as a way to feel control over the situation. Sometimes, like, people will, like, feel guilty for things that aren't their fault. Yeah, and he would have been, I mean... He would barely have been 13, 14, 15, maybe, when it was happening. So, you know, they were still young. They were still boys. His brother was a similar age. They were kind of like neighbor brothers, you know, like they had like the... Is that what they're called? Year Cole? apart, couple years apart. <laughs> That's not brothers? what they're called, but I'm giving it... They're neighbor <laughs> brothers. They were born really recently, you know, within several nine-month periods of one another. They're the closest in age. Yeah. Right there in that uh, middle bottom. So that's got to feel horrible. I feel like this is, this story's fucking terrible for everyone involved. And yeah. it all, it does ha- like remind me a little bit. It, it, George likes that kind of ironic reversal or karmic retribution or, you know, um, that comeuppance and punishment that he does where it has a, a nice little ring to it. Like Oberyn with Obara's mom. Do you choose the spear or the crying of your mother? And then Obara grows up, goes with her father, and is all tough and has her spear. And Lady Hornwood gets forced to eat her own fingers after yelling how this could happen to her, and no one listens. Or, you know, uh, I don't know, I just, I think that this is, like, the saddest thing for the Piper Lady, too. Like, dude, of course she was gonna trust her maester. Yeah, that's, like, the medicine she knows, and... I mean, I understand them wanting to try to save his fingers, right? She she wants to try to save his fingers, but I guess what is this supposed to be something about sacrifice? You you gotta let a few fingers go to I don't know survive because I can see why fire and seawater would have worked. You're disinfecting. I I mean, look at uh look at Victorian. That's so With true. His fire and seawater. So true, actually. <laughs> look at him, very strong, saved whole hand. He's good. That actually, that is, I think, I think there's something intentional mm-hmm. going on there now with Yuri and uh, Victorian and the hand thing. <sighs> there's other reasons that he's close to Yuri, but we'll save that. Yeah, this is what sent him into a bender for a handful of years, right? Aww. At 16, he was basically a sack of wine with legs. I love that line, though, because I was like saying, japing, mocking, singing, dancing, drinking. The drowned god gives every man a gift, even him. No man could piss longer or farther than Aaron Greyjoy as he proved at every feast. Once he bet his new longship against a herd of goats, he could quench a hearth fire with no more than his cock. He feasted on goat for a year. My bladder's not that big, but also... There's this insinuation that with his ship, the Golden Storm, Aaron wanted to shape the ram of the ship like a penis, and Balin was not happy about that. But I thought I thought that was like an interesting detail in the context of how Aaron is dealing with the death of Yuri. You get a lot of that overcompensation and him like really performing masculinity, specifically with that emphasis on genitals, on the penis, right? Alongside, you know, himself medicating with all the al- alcohol. 
really shows how he's been coping slash not coping with the trauma of his sexual abuse. Definitely not coping. Not coping. (laughs) Bad. In Balin's first rebellion, his ship had gone down and he had been carried to shore, taken captive to Lannisport by fishermen, as we mentioned earlier. And he's thinking on that now and how that man died, later drowned, reborn from the sea as damp hair priest, who could forget his memories of a rusting iron hinge screaming. Great and good brother accompanies him. He asks if it's going to come to war. And Aaron's like, if the drowned gods will it, or if I don't support one person, uh, if the drowned gods will it, thinking no woman could defeat Euron, not even Asha. And Theon was a boy of sulks and smiles. You know, I think she could have won if he backed her. <laughs> God damn it. <sighs> the whole idea of like no woman could defeat like Euron, I think is interesting. Like, is this foreshadowing also for like Daenerys, right? We have Victorian doubting her as we see. Um, and proving everyone wrong. There's also this idea of, you know, Euron representing the Storm God and, of course, Daenerys being known as Stormborn. So I don't know if there's something going on there. I'm just spitballing. I like that a lot. I really do, because she is one of the few people that could take down Euron, probably. And thinking back, you know, we talked a little bit about this in our Victorian 1, The Winds of Winter episode, just kind of speculating on maybe his fate and what happens with what we know. And... Maybe she comes back, and what if he shows up, and you know what, he's so loyal and dies so soon, and then she takes his ships and all the freed slaves that he comes upon in Marine, and goes home with those ships, and then she kills Euron Greyjoy with the Iron Fleet. That would be fun. It'd be, I, fun. I wonder if it could work, you know, if she, they would follow her. I'm very curious, right? Because in the way that the Dothraki follows strength, I'm unsure. Well, he treats everyone on those boats that are the workers, you know, most of them are thralls, which we know Victorian doesn't understand the differentiation between enslaving people and not, who would love a free life. I could see Daenerys freeing the thralls that he brought to Marine. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, some of them definitely know of her, right? Because some of those thralls are mm-hmm. from those kidnapped ships. He's like, oh, you were a slave on this ship? Now you're a free thrall on this ship? And they're like, uh... <laughs> Uh, Great, thanks. So Euron's ship decks were painted red to hide the blood that soaked them. That's an interesting interior design choice. Victorian must be king. Shouldn't it be like a dark brat? Anyways. Victorian must be king. Aaron thinks, or the storm will slay them all. Aaron and Graydon part. Graydon is heading to spread the news of the king's death, and Aaron continues alone, pausing to preach in villages, telling them that the Storm King has plucked Balin and cast him down, but a king will come again. A king will rise. Many join behind Aaron on the way to Pebbleton, cute name, home to several thousand fisher folk. Two score of Aaron's drowned men await him there, and they had built him a shelter. Above the tide line. How cute. He drowns his new- newest followers and heads into the shelter, praying for God to speak to him. He stays deep in thought on who must lead them. A younger brother owes obedience to the elder. Victarium would not go against this tradition easily, but Vic wasn't really head over heels for a Euron rule, either, he thinks. He was once the weakest of Quellen's sons, weak and frightened as a girl, but now he was strong. Thanks to God, thanks to drowning. He thinks on Naga's bones, on Yuri's bones, on the bones of the Grey King's Hall. He struggles back to the shore, pale, 
shivering, wiser than he had been before. His body seems to steam in the cold air, but fire burns in his heart, and his sleep is nightmare-free. This is what I'm saying. He, he goes, he watches the ocean, goes all the way into the ocean, then comes back out. This is the Kendall Roy hours, Chloe. This is the Kendall Roy hours. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, Aaron makes the next day, eating seaweed and a broth of clams, breaking the news to the Merlin. A fleshy man who calls himself a lord, dressing in furs and velvets, and Merlin asks, where is he supposed to go? One kraken pulls him to Pike, another to Ten Towers, the Princess Asha's tentacles, that is. Uh, he reminds me of Wyman Manderley, because Merlin yeah, yeah, yeah. and fleshy and furs and velvets. I was like, oh, wait, it's a, a you know, an ironborn Wyman. Yeah. But also, you know, I wrote, I wrote about this and I was like Princess Ash's tentacles and now I'm sitting here and I'm like that's way more pornographic than I intended it to be it was like now I, all I'm, I'm seeing is like hentai of Asha having tentacles which whomst amongst us would not like to experience those tentacles but happy pride month um, absolutely for all Asha of those tentacles things. absolutely for me for us all <sighs> that's all just too much information for you all George could have really gone further you know with Ash's tentacles? Yeah, he could have. The reader was sending ravens to gather folks to Harlaw to her cause, but Aaron says the drowned god will decide. Not Asha, not the reader. Aaron blesses Lord Merlin, telling him to stay, listen, and spread the good word. Aaron speaks to the crowd, telling them they are born from the sea, and to the sea they shall return. The Iron King is dead, but a king will come again. For what is dead may never die, but rises again, harder stronger work it make it wait sorry <laughs> do you not think that sometimes i do i, I do actually to... think it all the time whenever they say their stuff work it make it do it wait you're actually harder, that might have been stronger. out like the daft punk one might have been out by the time that what year was that george this song by daft punk came out i think 2001 yeah. so feast came out later so i'm i'm just saying it's possible work it make it Aaron asks them who shall be their king. The men slam their driftwood cudgels and shout, Damp hair king! But no, shall not be the damp hair. He was meant for the gods to be God's prophet. So I was reminded of one of the one of the bangers from the Catholic Church hymns when they were like, who shall be their king? It makes me think of like, especially with the prophet stuff, like, I don't remember the exact name of this one. It's like, whom shall I send? Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard. Do you remember that one? No. Maybe? Mm. I think our friend Maddie will know this one. Maddie knows all of my favorite church hymns. <laughs> I've made a lot of room in my head. You know, I've deleted some that of that from banger. my memory. That one's a banger. That one's good. I was running out of space. I could only have so many. Uh, well, I think that the parable that... Aaron uses here is really interesting to tell them, no, no, I'm not king, of, like, a father gives an axe to one son and a net to the other. Who does the father intend to be the warrior? And that implication that the wishes of the father must be obeyed based on the father's intent with these gifts rather than based on each child's ability or potential, especially, you know, since... Since, like, the damp hair is literally ignoring the axe, in a way, the metaphorical axe that the father Balin has given to Asha, 
but you know, whatever, whatever. Also reminds me a bit of the conflict with the black fires and the whole sword thing, but also even with Magor, right? Like I think Euron is his family's Magor. Or Aenys and Magor especially, or even looking at like Aegon the older yeah. versus uh the younger. Yeah. That's that's a really great I I I didn't even think about the axe for Asha, but that's literally she was the chosen one. She's the heir. Yeah, she's always like, this here is my lord husband, my axe, and then my suckling babe pulls out Dirk, right? And like, Balin literally intended her to inherit, but you know, he's all like, I'm gonna use this parable and not think deeply about it. And I, the parable is interesting, right? It, it's about like letting these external narratives, which we talk about all the time in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's driving them right? These symbols, these story symbols. And it's also driving this narrative that Aaron has crafted about himself. And at, when at the same time, it's kind of like Aegon the Fifth said, right? Like, the sword is just a fucking sword. But, I mean, Aaron, his name is only one letter off from being Aegon, the one letter change, right? He really could have been king. In this moment, he could have seized it and taken it. And I think that's really fascinating to think of, because as as we were saying, right? Like, these brothers are all very charismatic in their own way. They're all able to create this cult of personality around themselves in this in this way. And I kind of am starting to think that maybe Aaron could have withstood Euron based on religious fervor and the respect that he's garnered throughout the islands if he had chosen to, to mm-hmm. take the sea stone chair. That's so interesting. He Maybe. Maybe he could have. Um, he doesn't want it, though, quite clearly. And I will say, it's funny that you went Aegon with that, because I was going to tell you that if you change one letter in his name, it makes him someone else, a man of learning, Oh, Aemon. Oh. Yeah, someone else who gave up the throne. It's interesting that each of these families have this dynamic, right? Like, you have, uh, pick a Targaryen family where you got six to seven kids, and or, or 13 kids, and each one, you know, has a distinct personality, but one of them is always the one that could have been the king but didn't want it, or could have been, had the skills required, but didn't want it. Right, and I guess if if Aaron had pursued it, that would make him kind of in the same position as Renly, right, mm-hmm. uh, against his older brothers, but, I mean, Renly could have done it. He could have taken it, like, with the amount of support that he had versus Stannis. I think Aaron in retrospect, could have done it, which I had never considered until until rereading. Like, and obviously we u- see him use that religious power in the way that you, you talked about the High Sparrow before. And we see that happen mm-hmm. in the Victorian chapters when he's like, all right, well, you fucking give up, Victorian. I'm not giving up, but it's interesting. Yeah. Well, to close out, personally, it's such an epic last couple pages of the chapter, right? And we'd be remiss if we didn't do the king's moot in all of its glory. Because we're back. We're so back, baby. We're so back. Yes. (laughs) All right. I'm ready. Hold on. Let me get my water here. I got to get back into my booming deep voice. Yeah. My religious fervor. Deep voice. I'm ready to preach, baby. Woo. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, sister. Hallelujah. Amen. Speaking of, Righteous Gemstones is coming back soon, everyone. I can't fucking wait. Look not to me, nor to the laws of men, but to the sea. 
Raise your sails and unship your oars, my lord, and take yourself to Old Wick. You and all the captains and the kings, go not to Pike, to bow before the godless, nor to Harlaw, to consort with scheming woman. Point your prow toward Old Wick, where stood the Grey King's Hall. In the name of the drowned god, I summon you. I summon all of you. Leave your halls and your hovels, your castles and your keeps, and return to Naga's Hill to make a king's moot. The Merlin gaped at him. A king's moot? There's not been a true king's moot in the- Too long a time! Yet in the dawn of days when the Ironborn chose their own kings, raising up the worthiest amongst them, it is time we return to the old way, for only that shall make us great again. It was a king's moot that chose Urus Ironfoot for High King, and placed a driftwood crown upon his brow. Silas Flatnose, Harrig Hoare, the old Kraken, the king's moot raised them all. And from this king's moot shall emerge a man to finish the work King Balin has begun and win us back our freedoms. Go not to Pike, nor to the Ten Towers of Harlaw, but to Old Wick, I say again. Seek the hill of Naga and the bones of the Grey King's Hall, for in that holy place when the moon has drowned and come again, we shall make ourselves a worthy king, a godly king. Listen, listen to the waves, listen to the god. He is speaking to us, and he says, we shall have no king but from the king's moot. A roar went up at that, and the drowned men beat their cuddles one against the other. A king's moot! 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 But from the king's moot! No king, but from the king's moot! And the clamor that they made was so thunderous that surely the crow's eye heard the shouts on Pike and the vile storm god in his cloudy hall. And Aaron Dampere knew he had done well. I did well. <laughs> That's all he wanted. That's all he wanted. A little validation. You know? <laughs> I mean, he actually wants a lot of things, to be honest. And you, you, were, you were saying this is an epic ending. So it's got big King in the North ending vibes. Yeah. No king, but the king from the king's boot. It's a much... It's a very silly... It's much harder to say. <laughs> much more of a silly. twister. <laughs> Yeah. You know, IRL Viking culture, not in book life, but in, in real life Viking culture. I don't know. I don't think the Ironborn are very one-one with the Vikings. I think there are a few differences in their culture, but there's a lot obviously taken from them. They're not one historical group. There's a lot blended in there. George mm -hmm. loves all that shit, but there's a little more complexity than that. But I find it fascinating, and I want to share this, something kind of similar to the King's Moot, not... One one, but it, you know the king's moot's not a judicial party beyond king making. But Scandinavians had something called the thing or things, which hmm. are basically events. So it's oh. a thing, a event, hmm. and we're having a thing, and I so it's a, a gathering later. where, yeah, we're going to the thing later. Uh, <laughs> they write Viking law and settle disputes during it. They would meet regularly, and the local chieftains and a Viking law speaker would judge, settle cases, but all free men of the community would have a say, and so. More often than not, they're compiled of local powerful families that run it, so obviously the Greyjoys would run that. The thing would be all sorts of people.
people, though, as far as size, like you might have a very small community and so you'd have a very small community thing or a larger community. Iceland, for example, would hold a national thing. It was called the All Thing. Hmm. And then, yeah, and any malefactors who were tried at the thing or found guilty were fined or outlawed. And to be an outlaw was like a horrible punishment for the Vikings. You'd be put outside of law, banished from their society, all your property confiscated, and they... Like, you'd be shunned as a pariah, basically. Like, you're not allowed to come back or take anything. Yeah. So, and besides, like, the horrifying loneliness of never being able to talk to anyone of your kind ever again, you could just get killed by anyone. Oh, So cool. they'd usually, yeah, right, flee the country, <laughs> settle somewhere else. Um, interesting, though. That's, that's probably one of the closer things to the king's mood, I guess, in history. Things. That thing is close thing. That thing. That thing. That, that thing, thing is porn. Oh, I was thinking oh. that. Wow, we went two different songs, similar era, but dang. Okay. Okay, is that where you were going? I was going, I see. that thing, that thing, that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was on last night at the bar. Yeah. We could also do with the all thing. We could go, all things go, all things go. All things go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, man, can you imagine the absolute idiocy of giving your election to God, who is not a part of this democracy? I mean, in a way, they did, right? But turns yeah. out the wrong one, the storm god. Ugh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Aaron was, he had a lot of faith, and um, again, faith's about faith. to be tested. Baby. He, yeah, I guess he didn't really think about the part where, like, what if the greed of men was stronger than their faith in God? Anyway. And it is. It is. It is. Congrats, Aaron. You could have just- It's Euron, yeah. You could have had it all. You could have had Asha. She's very godly, you know, comparably, and rip. Well, coming back to Aaron has more power than he- or I thought, and yet chose not to wield it wisely. Um, Aaron, with an E, A-E-R-O-N. Likely, the name is inspired by Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, a.k.a. the prophet and high priest slash brother of Moses. And I, he, he was... He had priesthood for himself and his descendants, and we also have that time during, like, the the exodus, right, where he crafts the golden calf during a moment when the Israelites lapse in faith on the way to the promised land, which gets fixed by Moses, but he erects, you know, a golden calf and is like, go worship this idol instead of God, because uh, that's what they wanted. And I, I feel like, I wonder if that's where what George is hinting at with the story, with the idolatry of, of Euron, but Aaron here is actually being like, no, no, don't do it. And so it's interesting, when I think of Aaron's story in A Song of Ice and Fire... I think we have a problem where Aaron thinks that he is Aaron from Exodus when really he's Moses, I think. But trauma and fear. Yeah. Well, kind of. Okay, I'm being serious. Yeah. I mean, no, he, I'm I'm agreeing. Yeah, he's but the trauma and fear prevent him from like really seizing that. And also as as you said, maybe he doesn't want it. Maybe he is a little humble, but like if there was ever a time yeah. to step up, this was it. This was it, sir. Yeah, this was like a very irresponsible showing for him. 
And it definitely is kind of a trauma response, huh? Well, that and also the cultural part where he's like, we're not backing a woman, but I don't know. There were there were two ways out of this, and he chose none of them. <laughs> I'm, sure the, <laughs> I'm sure the thing seemed like a really good idea at the time. Well, you know, the good news is next week we'll be back to cover the rest of the fuck up. The rest of the fuck up. Yeah, we did already cover the King's Mood chapter. Back in Asha's stuff, right? Back in Asha's, yeah. Maybe we uh maybe I'll revisit that chapter and listen to what we said. Who knows? Who Who knows? knows? What did we say? That was actually Those were the good days. I miss Asha. Asha was fun. Can we do it all over again? Yeah, let's do Asha fun. again. I don't know. Aaron chapters are fun. Let's be real. They are fun. They're gonna oh. end on they're gonna end with a bang. Yeah. In wins. Absolutely. <laughs> in wins. In wins. Well, thank you so much for listening in, all of you at home. We're happy to have our Eliana back. Eliana, welcome back. Welcome I'm back. am I Euron? Returning <laughs> from the journey? E E. Letters E. Anyways. Hmm. hmm. I'm a, you're on. I'm like a bird. I only fly away. Great joy. <laughs> anyway, if you want to keep up with all of our stuff and how I guess I'm back now, you can on social media where we are still on Twitter. Speaking of birds, you can find us at twitter.com slash girls gone canon. That's C-A-N-O-N. And maybe you have thoughts for us, right? That you would like to send us a raven, aka creature of the storm god. You can by emailing us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, make sure that you're subscribed to us, you know, on a podcast platform that you like to stream your podcast from, whether that's Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, iHeartRadio, Audible, Pandora, Amazon Podcasts, we're anywhere you look. And of course, somewhere that you can always find us is on Patreon. Where patrons in the $5 tier and above get access to bonus episodes. For example, Victorian last month, if you missed me. Or The Forsaken this month, which is going to be, again, a banger. Amazing. Yeah, and patrons in the Thunder tier and above do get access to our private Discord server. It's real fancy. We got lots of little gifts and emojis and the best people in the world. So take a look at that. We do monthly events like brunch slash happy hour or sometimes other events. Uh, We would love to have you. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Signing off. See you next week. No cannon, but from the cannon's moot. No cannon, but from the cannon's (laughs) cannon's moot. (laughs) Goodbye.